0: TheYeshiva.net. Yeshiva.net Thank you so, so much, Rabbi Drizzen. Thank you for coming and attending uh, this evening's lecture. I want to begin by saying that uh, I have watched the creation and the development of Chabad here, of Woodcliffe Lake and the Valley, over the last two decades. 18 years, 19 years, 18 years, and uh, observing the tremendous growth of the community, both horizontally and vertically. The camaraderie, the impact and the influence that Rabbi and Rebetzin Drizzen created over these two decades, creating so many bridges Connections, bonds, and generating so much inspiration and education and growth in Judaism and the Jewish community is really moving, remarkable, inspiring. And each and every one of you who is part of it or will become part of it should truly cherish this great opportunity. And I bless you to go from strength. To strength to be able to grow your community and to continue to be the pillars that you are in creating such a vibrant, loving and united community filled with warmth and inspiration and commitment to our greatest and deepest values and ideals. And I'm privileged once again, I've been here uh, sometimes once a year, every few years, and I'm privileged again to have been invited by Rabbi Dov to address you this evening. On the very boring topic of happiness happiness joy animation excitement they tell a story about a fellow a Jewish guy's name was Yankel you ever heard of the Jewish name Yankel Yankel was a great guy but he had one issue that many Jews have he suffered from terrible anxiety you know any Jews like that? He was always anxious, always thank you, always worried. Yeah. They used to say the Jewish telegram reads as follows: start worrying, details to follow. And somebody once said in a kosher restaurant, the waiter goes from table to table and asks one question: Is anything alright? <laughs> There's a lot of anxiety. Anxiety, they sigh, and so forth. And this Yankel was a classic warrior. He was always, always worried. He had a company, he had a business with a lot of employees, and they got along well, but he never stopped worrying. He was always preparing and expecting the worst. One day, shockingly to all of his employees, Yankel comes in in the morning and he's content. The man is calm, serene, relaxed, wishing everybody good morning with that symphonic note that exemplified absolute tranquility. And finally his, his team, his friends came over and said, Yanko, what happened? What are you taking? What are you on? What's this miraculous transformation? It's not the same person we know, you're not worried. He says, I hired somebody. I read an article that today you can hire somebody to worry. (laughs) That's their job. You pay them a salary and their job is to worry. So I delegated this part of the job to this fellow, a wonderful guy, they say he's unbelievable, and he is going to carry my worries in lieu of me, so I could be calm. I say, wow, that's so interesting. And what's the salary? I mean, what does such a guy take? He says, well, the first year, he starts off with $150,000 a year. They say, Yankel, you know how we're struggling here. You know that we're not sure we're going to be able to live up to our hopes and our dreams. You know the financial situation of this company better than anybody else. How in the world did you come across $150,000 to pay this guy? He says, well, that's his first worry. (laughs) So, uh, the fact remains that despite the truth, that with all of our worries and anxieties, we live in incredible times, with incredible opportunities, with incredible gifts. Nonetheless, it often has little to do with the gift of happiness and serenity. It's true that you and I have things that your parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents not only didn't have, they couldn't dream of having. It wasn't even part of the lexicon of possibility. But still it doesn't take away the fact that from the moment I wake up till the moment I go to sleep, often my head is rattled with thoughts and emotions that cause anxiety. Which is why so many of you and so many of us have a good therapist where we sit once a week, maybe it should be once a day, some people suggest once an hour. (laughs) And maybe you could move in there to their basements and talk about anxiety and issues. What's my job tonight? I'm not your therapist. You're not paying me $150,000 a year to worry for you. I want to share, I think, two major Jewish perspectives. What did our grandmothers, -grandmothers, great-grandmothers, great-great-great-grandmothers, going back 3,300 years, know about life that can help us today in the 21st century? Two major perspectives of Torah, of Yiddishkeit, of our teachings. Now, we have been around for a long time. They once asked a Chinese politician what his opinion of the French and American Revolution were. And he said, It's too early to tell. <laughs> but in terms of Judaism, it's not too early to tell. We've been around for close to 4,000 years. That's extraordinary. What has sustained us? What has animated us? Are there ideals, ideas, insights we could learn from our wisdom, from our heritage, from our faith, from our history, from our parents, from our ancestors, from our traditions? Indeed, from a Jewish perspective, happiness is not just something of luxury, but it's actually a moral obligation. The verse says in Psalms, Evdu Hashem besimcha. You will serve God with joy. And if you were created to serve, it means joy ought to be part of my life and your life all the time. Famous verse in Deuteronomy, God demands and says, where's the joy? So in Judaism, joy is not just voluntary or nice or cute or a better life but it's actually part of our responsibility. It's part of the moral life. It's part of being a good person. First of all, for ourselves, and also for the people around us. But how do we do it? Tonight we want to explore at least two perspectives. Anyway, this Jewish fellow in New Jersey, actually, name is George calls up the rabbi says rabbi I'm getting older and I know that I'm gonna die soon I'm so sorry to hear why do you speak this way He says, listen rabbi everybody reaches their end and my end is near rabbi says anything I can do for you yeah he says I'm shopping around for a good rabbi to officiate at my funeral I want it to be a good nice funeral with a great eulogy And I know you're a good speaker, you're a great communicator. I would like to hire you, Rabbi. But I first have to know your fees. Now this guy, George, was a very wealthy Jew, but he was equally stingy and tight with his money. He says, Rabbi, let's hear, and I'm basically shopping. I want to see the best offer. The Rabbi says, well, it depends what type of eulogy you want. He says, what do you mean? What are the options? He says, there's a deluxe package. There's a super, super deluxe package. And then there's the ordinary package. He says, let's start with super, super deluxe. What is it? Rabbi says it's 12 grand. What do I get for $12,000? The Rabbi says, you get a eulogy that is dramatic, poetic, splendid, filled with wisdom and emotion, and I also break down crying. Five times during the eulogy for true penetrating impact. He says, Rabbi, it's great, but $12,000, Bis Shiga? No way. No way. Let me hear about the deluxe package. Rabbi said, Deluxe package is seven and a half grand. What do I get for it? He says, You get a wonderful eulogy. I sing your praises, I extol your virtues. With eloquence and drama, but no tears. No crying. I deliver it, but that's it. He says, Rabbi, seven and a half grams is my What's the cheapest? Rabbi says, The cheapest is $500 eulogy. He says, What do I get for that? The rabbi says, Then I say the truth. <laughs> But the truth is, <laughs> speaking about the truth, there is an enigmatic story in the Ethics of the Fathers, Perkei Avot, which is one of the Talmudic tractates, composed approximately 1,900 years ago. The Ethics of the Fathers. And in Chapter 6, our sages tell a story. It's a story of two millennia ago. There was a great sage, his name was Rabbi Yosi, Yosi ben Kisma. And a person invited him to leave his community, his academy, where he studied Torah, where he taught Torah, come to a place where the focus was money, wealth, and fame. And he told them, I will not. And the man offered him a tremendous amount of wealth. Because they wanted a personality like him in their presence, maybe to give them a kosher supervision or whatever it is, to give them a stamp of... Uh, Uh, spiritual authority and vindication, he refused. He said, I want to remain rooted in my place of of, of Yiddishkeit, of Torah learning, Torah practice, etc. But then he says, Let's add another insight. And the great sage, quoted by the Mishnah, Mishnah says, When a person dies, When a person dies, what escorts him is not his diamond or her diamond or jewels or great wealth or assets or real estate. A person takes nothing of that along in the grave. The only thing that accompanies a person in the afterlife, he says, is Torah or Ma'asim Tovim. Good deeds kind deeds, moral deeds, ethical deeds godly deeds and Torah and I ask you a question the Mishnah says this as a novel idea person doesn't take money in the grave do I really need great Talmudic geniuses to tell me that you don't take your real estate into the grave who doesn't know this ask a 4 year old child after 120 years will Donald Trump take Trump Tower with him Will Warren Buffett take his assets? Will Bill Gates take his assets? Will anybody take their buildings, their bank accounts, their watches, their cars, their homes, their yachts, their private planes? Doesn't even fit in the grave. Even if it would, what are they going to do with it? All there is is a body left. Don't take anything. This is common wisdom that a three-year-old understands. Every person understands this. A simpleton, sometimes maybe more than a genius. What's this great novel idea? By the way, don't think you're going to take jewelry into the next world. Obviously you won't. But the truth is, the Mishnah is saying something deep and so real and so authentic. It's not talking about the person who dies. When the Mishnah says he or she, when they die, they're not escorted with money. It's not talking about the person who's deceased. It's talking about the people who escort them, the people who attend their funeral. You know, I find a fascinating, a fascinating phenomenon. Maybe you can explain this to me. As a rabbi, I sometimes have to attend various funerals. It's sad. It's always sad, no matter the circumstances. Obviously, sometimes the circumstances are different than others. Sometimes it's people I know. Sometimes it's people I don't know. Sometimes it's poor people. Sometimes it's very wealthy people. Sometimes extremely successful people. And I find a fascinating phenomenon, and I'm still looking for the exception, and I still can't find the exception. And I'll tell you what I see. There's a fellow I know, an older fellow, a workaholic, he's in the office 18, 19 hours a day, has no time for community affairs, no time for social life, no time for his spouse, no time for his kids, no time for his grandkids, forget about it. No time for himself, he's always another dollar, another dollar, ambitious, creative, nice, nice fine person. But focused on one thing. Money, 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 money. I'll meet him in the shul in the synagogue. Can I speak to you for a moment? (laughs) Rabbi, you know how busy I am. You know how busy I am. I have ten appointments, another deal, another deal, another building, real estate. Another building, another house, Sell, buy, construction. And you know there's always what to do. Baruch Hashem, there's always what to do. And he's been doing this for a half a century. With sweat, blood and tears, comes his funeral. People get up to give a eulogy. And I'm waiting for one person to get up and talk about what this person truly invested his life in. Buying more real estate, flipping it, selling it. 17 hours a day, 18 hours a day. Now, I'm waiting one person to get up and say, wow, the passion, the passion for money, the passion for success, the passion to get that deal done, the passion to negotiate and get the best price, the passion to squeeze every last ounce of juice out of every single client and potential seller or buyer until he got it done. He spent more than 50 years doing this day and night. A three-hour funeral. Nobody mentioned this. One person gets up. The way he cared for people. They cracked, you know, when you, there's the expression, You know what cratstice means? I'll say it and then I'll say, it, But I get cratst. They had to squeeze and find that 20 years ago, he once helped a particular family, and that became the focus of the funeral. And then he once met an orphan, and he helped him with a scholarship to college. And once he gave a homeless man 50 bucks, and his sister had a tragedy in the family, and he helped the family for a couple of years. They found three or four events in his life to depict his love, sensitivity, and kindness. Not one person got up to speak about what this man was doing for 50 years. The rabbi got up, and the rabbi said, you know, 35 years ago, they wanted to foreclose on the shul, and he negotiated with the bank, and he got us back our building. He found a story thirty-five years ago that this guy was connected to the manager of ben- and it was beautiful. But I asked myself, I don't understand. Do you know how into his watches this man was? The ch- way he chose them, and the way he wore them, and the way he—why sh- does nobody mention it? Do you know how he took care of his Bentley? with such tender loving care, If there was dust on it, it could cause him cardiac arrest. He really loved it, he cherished it, he glorified it, he lived for it. Suddenly by the funeral, nobody. He didn't lie, nobody lied. But they found story after story from each, like every few decades, they found some story. Funeral after funeral that I attend, I see the same thing. They'll discuss, the children will get up and discuss the warmth of their father. Children will get up and discuss the love of their mother. They'll talk about the generosity of their grandfather, the kindness of their uncle, the faith of their aunt, the passion for social justice, or for charity, or for morality, or for ethics of this person or that person. Almost completely ignoring or completely ignoring the fact that this person mostly had no time because they were so busy with work. And then I understood the Mishnah. We're not talking about the person who died. We're talking about the people who escort the person. In other words, we each have two resumes, each of us. We each have two CVs, two curriculum vitae's. There is your career resume, and there is your funeral resume. And they're very different. And when it comes at that moment of truth, most people sitting there suddenly realize that the resume they may have invested so much of their life in, has very little significant significance for the resume that is relevant right here. And suddenly they will try to dig up from the graves, pun intended, or from somewhere. Some virtues, some qualities, some characteristics that talk about the person's good deeds, caring deeds, ethical deeds, holy deeds, their connection to family, their connection to children, their connection to community, their connection to the needy, their caring for, for, for the world, for the Jewish people, for Israel, for God, for the Torah, each community according to its Weltanschauung and perspective. A whole new resume emerges. And then one has to ask themselves this question. What if that resume I could write when I'm young? Imagine today, you could see yourself at the age of 104, sitting on your hammock, laying on your hammock, drinking a pina colada, and reflecting on your life, and asking yourself the question, what do I really want to be remembered for? What is the resume that will be explored at my final journey? What am I going to be escorted with? What is the most meaningful? Or in other words, what is the life that would make me happiest? Most me what is the most meaningful life? And here is where Jewish wisdom has a lot to say on this topic. And it's always inspiring when you see how a modern-day study personifies such a profound Jewish idea in such a dramatic way. Well, there is a renowned psychologist by the name of Robert Waldinger. He's the director of a study, Harvard University, known as the Harvard Study of Adult Development. I want to tell you what is unique about this study. Very few studies in the world can compete with this one because it's going on for more than 75 years. It started in 1938. Now, really, will you have a study that started in 1938, is already on its fourth director. Waldinger is its fourth director. And it started with interviewing 700 And 2724 teenagers in 1938 in Boston, in Massachusetts, of very different backgrounds. Some of them were sophomores in Harvard, or freshmen, and others were living in the tenements in Boston, impoverished, often didn't have running water in their homes. Very, very poor, poor families. 724 youngsters, they visited them, they got their medical records, they spoke to their parents, they spoke to them, and they continue to interview them every year or two years. Today, those who are alive are in their 90s, and they continue to research their lives. They go to their homes. They scan their brains, they check their medical records, they talk to them, they talk to their spouses, they interview them, they discuss their health on every single level. A study that's going on for 75 years, and it's still alive, the funding is still there, and many of the people are still actively involved. As Waldinger told the story, he says, the people from inner city Boston keep on asking us, why are you so interested in our lives? We have pretty boring lives. Says the men of Harvard never asked that question. <laughs> and he asks this question: What did they find? They were interviewing them at the age of 17, 20, 25, 30, 35, 50, 60, 70, 80. And they wanted to find what are the common denominators of a life that is healthy physically and emotionally and psychologically. And they were looking for it. And he says a fascinating thing. That the results demonstrated unequivocally. They would think when you check somebody's cholesterol level at the age of 50, that is going to predict what type of life he's going to be living at the age of 80. But Waldinger says that was, of course it has an impact. It was not decisive. That was not the key issue nor wealth, nor success, nor prosperity, nor fame, nor achievement, nor popularity. The single most critical factor to produce a life that was physically and emotionally more healthy, meaning people who could say, I feel good, I feel content, I feel happy, physically healthier, and their brains also doing much better. There was one issue and a trump, no pun intended, a trump, and the other issue. And the single issue was the quality of their relationships. They had good, powerful, healthy, charged relationships. Meaning, those who were born to poor families, raised with poverty... And many of them went through life. One of them became a president of the United States. Some became factory workers, bricklayers, dentists, lawyers, bankers, grocery men. Some developed alcoholism. Some developed schizophrenia. Some went from the bottom to the top. Some went from the top to the bottom in terms of the social ladder. But there was one common denominator, and that is... Those who were living more solitary lives, lonely lives, it was proved to be a recipe for powerful deterioration. Conversely, those who lived lives with strong relationships and bonds, it was a recipe for far more happiness, And goodness and quality of life. But not just relationships in terms of how many likes they have on Facebook. Real relationships. Relationships with people who care for you deeply and you care for them. Relationships with people that when you have a crisis, you can lean on them and find support in them. Relationships with people that there is transparency, there is openness, there is vulnerability. You could be naked and raw in their presence psychologically, I mean. Deep relationships, real relationships, marriages or other types of friendships that were penetrating, that were consistent. And I found this fascinating because in Judaism, this quality is so vital that it's the first time God says the word, not good. If you'll open up the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis, which just, we just started to learn literally last week after some Chaturah. God creates the heaven and the earth, the entire universe, and He always says the same thing about everything. God saw what He made and it was good. God saw what He made, it was good. Good, 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 good. God saw everything He made and it was very good. Thank you, God. We knew you knew how to do it. Every day He saw what was good, He saw what was good. No kidding. <laughs> if you made it, you probably thought it was good. <laughs> Until he creates the first man. And suddenly you, ex- you expect, say now, it's good. No. The crown of creation. No. God says, Lotov, Heyota hayota Adam Levado. First time it says not good in the Hebrew Bible. It's not good for Adam, for man to be alone, it's not good, lotos. The first time the word not good is in the Torah. Before everything else, the solitariness, the fact that I feel and I am alone in the world. It's fascinating, speak to most people who are 25 years old, 32 years old, 26 years old, intelligent kids. I'm calling them kids, they're not all kids. Speak even to 45 or 40-year-old 40 men or women. Ask them, where are you investing most of your time? And the answer will be, they're successful people. I want a, I want a successful career. I want a beautiful lifestyle. I want to be rich. Some of us want, I want to be accomplished. I want to achieve. Whatever it is. But what are they going to escort you to the next world with? Meaning... What are the resume, what is the resume that everybody realizes ultimately essential? Are you cultivating that first thing that God says is good? Which is why in Judaism, relationships is at the center of Jewish life. Of course, marriage, family, the legendary commitment of Jews to family, the legendary jokes about Jewish mothers which I will not go through now even though we have a repertoire of three, four hundred jokes and they're really infinite because every Jewish mother can create her own comedy scene if you observe the kitchen but the comedy underlies, it belies a truth the commitment to family, the commitment to education the commitment to relationships the the sacrifice for relationships the commitments to a marriage but not only a marriage, community All of Jewish life is celebrated in community. And the highlight of Jewish life, the institution of Shabbat. What is Shabbat? The day of Sabbath, if not the day that the Jewish people dedicated to spend time with themselves and their loved ones, both in terms of family and community, in the synagogue, in the homes. It's fascinating when people ask if Judaism is still relevant in the 21st century. The question is not if it's still relevant. The question is, was it ever as relevant as it is today? What does it do for a marriage and a family and a community when for 24 hours my children know that Rabbi therefore fo- they don't call me Rabbi they call me Tati. That Tati's, well, one of my sons called me Rabbi Waiwai, and I said, oh, oh, this is bad. <laughs> This is, this is career resume, not funeral resume. This is bad. They don't call me Rabbi. You call me Tati. <laughs> I remain your father. Don't call me no rabbis. What does it do for a family when your children know that 24 hours a day they have your undivided attention? Tati is not going to work. He's not checking his emails. He's not using his cell phone. He's not watching TV, he's not going shopping, he's not going to sell or buy or do anything. It's an unbelievable institution. Whether you're orthodox, conservative, reform, reconstructionist, conservadox, right-wing, left-wing, almost right-wing, almost left-wing, centrist, pro-Trump, anti-Trump, pro the new judge, pro pro the new Supreme Court, against, pro-Ford, against Ford. Wherever you are in the world, I ask you when it comes to the funeral resume, is there a healthier institution than the institution of Shabbat? Having an intimate meal, singing songs, eating gefilte fish. I don't mean the jarred gefilte fish that is one of the more horrible institutions of Jewish life. <laughs> but, but today you can buy wonderful gefilte fish. Arguing, conversing, schmoozing, the bonding. The whole shul experiences where rich and poor sit together and schmooze have a kiddush together, have a conversation together, pray together, sing together, study together. Most of Jewish life revolves around relationships, bonds, communities. Very powerful. Judaism understood this. Lo tov heyota adam levado. When you're going to be 98 years old, sitting on your couch, looking back, you don't want to have to regret where you spent the most hours of your life. I never heard a 99-year-old man tell me, and I've spoken to them, Rabbi Jacobson, when I say, what would have you done differently? I never heard anybody say, Rabbi Jacobson, I wish I would have spent another six hours in the office. I wish I would have missed another few birthday parties, another few graduations, another few milestones, another few anniversaries. I wish that office needed me so much more. I never heard that said. Not before and not after. Why not? Isn't that interesting? Isn't that fascinating? And shouldn't that tell me and you to start reflecting now? When God willing we have our lives ahead of us. And ask myself, where am I investing my time? This is the fact. Now you'll tell me, oh this is old simple wisdom. Our grandmothers knew this. A lot of our grandmothers knew this. But it's easy to forget, and I'll tell you why it's easy to forget. We like, we're, we like microwaves. How long did it take your grandmother to bake a potato? You remember? At least 45 minutes an hour. Today, with a microwave, if it takes more than three minutes, you sue the company. We are the microwave generation. We like things fast, and we like things hot. We want quick fixes for happiness. Happiness. Give me a fast drug. Give me a good gadget. Give me an exciting toy to make me happy. Relationships are a life-long investment. And they're messy. George Burns said, right? The best thing in the world is to have a large, big, amazing Jewish family in another city. It's always the best thing. I just got it. (laughs) Relationships are messy. Investing in your marriage, investing in, we're going back to therapy now. Investing in my relationship with my children, with all their attitudes. With all their attitudes, they don't know how to show appreciation. These American New Jersey brats that I've raised. Investing in your relationship with your brother, with your sister who you think is a narcissist already from the age of 14? (laughs) Investing in relationships with that friend who backstabbed you 29 years ago? And therefore many of us live lonely lives. Yes, we text the world, we know what's going on everywhere, but emotionally we're lonely. I don't have anybody with whom I can really share my life on a daily basis. Maybe one person, and I have to pay him $350 for him to listen to me. It's good to have, but I'm not talking about that. That's why this wisdom is not so popular, even though it's pretty simple. God said it because it's the truth of existence. That's the first thing I want you to think about tonight. What's happening in this area in your life? and in my life. And remember, these are the things that are not urgent the next moment, but they're important. If I get a call, it's urgent. If my relationship is failing, it's not urgent, but it's important, it's critical, it's vital. And as Waldinger's Harvard study shows, when he examined an 85-year-old man, it was with men who had powerful, good relationships, their life was just a different life. Yes money, no money. It's great to have a lot of money. You should have a lot of money and have a lot of success and make sure that office is beautiful and strike every deal you can and be as popular as possible. But you gotta know what the real resume is. You wanna make sure that resume is full. Sometimes people career resumes goes 29 pages. You ever see those resumes? You get Meshuggah, you get a migraine from just looking at it. But the virtue resume, the funeral resume is two or three lines. I say they should at least be equal. I'm not telling you this should be three. They should at least be equal. Maybe one a little more than the other. But there's one more thing, my dear friends. I want you to think about tonight. By the way, I just have to share this with you. It's just a lovely Jewish anecdote, and I think it's great. This fellow needed to say Kaddish for his father. His father, I'm sorry, for his mother. His mother died. He just lit up the candles, and he had to say Kaddish for his mother. He went to a wedding of a friend, and uh, there was a good bar, and he liked to drink, and he took a couple, and he fell asleep, and he woke up at three in the morning, and he realized it's his mother's yard yahrzeit. It's the day of her passing, and we have a tradition: we go to synagogue, we honor the memory of our fathers and mothers throughout our lives by saying kaddish. It's a very special mitzvah. But where are you going to find a minion? Where are you going to find people praying three o'clock in the morning? Everyone is asleep. This was in Israel. So he went to what's called a neighborhood, Zichron Moshe in Motion, Jerusalem, where there's like a minion factory. They pray there like 24 hours a day. Everybody comes, a little big crowd. But even there, three o'clock in the morning, it was empty. You know what he did? He called up a car service company in Jerusalem. And he said, could you send over nine cars, please? Nine cars. They said, Nine. We don't have three in the morning, nine cars. We could send you three. Send me three. He calls up another car service company. Nine cars, or now he needed six cars. We don't have six. We'll send you three. Three. Another company sends another three. Fifteen minutes later, nine taxis in Israel and Jerusalem show up in front of the synagogue at three o'clock in the morning. You imagine the scene? And they see another eight cars. Now, when Israeli taxi drivers are angry, be careful. They come out. What He says, listen, guys, put on your meters. Put on your meters. I'm paying each and every one of you. My mother's yard site. My mother died. I need to say Kaddish. I needed a minion. I needed 10 people. So I called the nine cars. Together with me, it's 10. Coming to the synagogue. We're going to say Kaddish. I'll pay you for your time, just as we took a trip wherever you took me. All of your meters, put them on now. I'll pay you every shekel. They all came into the shul, they put on their kippot. He prayed the evening service. He said Kaddish. They finished. They came out ten minutes later. He goes to the first person. He says, "What's the price?" And the man says, "You think I'm going to charge you for paying such tribute to your mother?" I'm not going to charge you for this. It was a privilege for me. He went to the second driver. second driver says the same thing. I'm not going to take money from you for honoring your mother this way. None of the nine taxi drivers would take a cent on agura or a shekel from this Jew for honoring his mother. This tells you about a tradition in which family is honored, bonds are honored, relationships are honored. These nine Jews weren't orthodox or ultra-orthodox Jews, but they were infused with the attitude of Judaism to life, to relationships, to children, to parents, to grandparents, to great-grandparents, to community, to camaraderie, to bonding. There's one more thing I want you to think about. If you go through the Torah, if you go through the Bible, who comes across, it's going to be a little Jewish trivia question, who comes across as the happiest person? Anybody? Abraham? Interesting. Anybody else? Aaron? What do you say? Yosef? Joseph. Why do you say Joseph? It's my name. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. And this is not just a subjective instinct. If you read the text of the Tanakh, of the Jewish Hebrew Bible, great people, you have Adam and Eve, you even have the snake. You got Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, each one with their own virtues and qualities. But the person who the Torah says again and again about them, they were full of chen, full of grace. And literally from the abyss, rose to become one of the most important people of the generation, full of happiness and grace, was a man named Yosef, a man named Joseph. And he occupies the second half of the book of Genesis. It's dedicated to this man named Joseph. Very briefly, for those who were doing a spitball game in Hebrew school, therefore, you don't remember that? (laughs) And they, or, or you were coloring your Hanukkah book, your Hanukkah menorah book, and you don't remember the story, I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to remind you of the story. Well known. Joseph was 17. He was abducted by his brothers who hated him. They threw him into a pit. Then they took him of the pit, from the pit and they sold him into slavery. He became a slave in Egypt to a man named Potiphar. There he was accused of raping Potiphar's wife. He was innocent. She tried to violate him. He refused. She blamed him. <laughs> okay, yes, I was also thinking about that. And, and he ends up in prison for 12 years. In prison. This is not social commentary on the present situation. I'm telling you the story of Joseph. It happens to me that everything in Torah, I know what you're thinking, I know what you're thinking, I'm not as dumb as I look He's in prison for 12 years, this poor kid. At the age of 30, Pharaoh has a dream. And Pharaoh doesn't have anybody to interpret his dream. And there's a prisoner, an inmate who is free, who knows that Joseph is a good dream interpreter. So he summons Joseph, he interprets Pharaoh's dream, Pharaoh is blown away, appoints him to become the prime minister of Egypt. And in the next seven years of plenty, he puts away food. So in the seven years of famine... Egypt and the entire Fertile Crescent survives the famine because of Joseph's vision and unique economic skills which he employs as the viceroy, as the prime minister of one of the superpowers if not the superpower of the time Egypt 21 years later his brothers starving in Israel come down for food they don't recognize him he recognizes them And after two, more than two decades, he reveals his identity to them. And startlingly, in a startling moment, they are dumbfounded. They can't believe that the brother they kidnapped, they threw into a pit, they wanted to kill him, they sold him into slavery, is now second to the most powerful person in the world. They, of course, think he's going to take revenge He'll kill them. He'll arrest them and torture them. But then Joseph says, you have no reason to fear or get depressed. You did not sell me. God sent me here. He sent me on a mission to save our family and to save civilization from a devastating famine because as a result of me being prime minister of this country, I could create a system of allocation." where the food was preserved in the proper way so that the people can eat, men, women, and children of Egypt, and all of the surrounding countries, including the land of Israel, which was then called the land of Canaan. That's the story of Joseph, very briefly. And throughout the ordeal, the Torah has him crying seven times. No other figure in the Bible cries so many times. And a man who, despite his terrible tragedy, is filled with inner grace and charm He's so appealing, he's so charismatic, he's always rising to the top. And he's never destroyed. And I look at the life of Joseph as one of the most powerful lessons in 2018 when it comes to achieving and cultivating a life of deeper happiness. And I ask the question, would I be able to forgive my brothers? with you. Look at what this person has been through. He was 17. At the age of 9, he was orphaned from his mother. Rachel died during childbirth. Joseph was a young kid. He was 9. He had no mother. His father loved him, but his brothers loathed him. They throw him into the abyss. They sell him into slavery. He lost everything. And then he's accused of rape. As a slave, he was doing well. But his master's wife accused him of violating her and plunged him into a prison pit in Egypt for 12 years. And throughout his time as a slave and as a prisoner, he remains upbeat. How? Why? What is even more astounding and mind-staggering is when he meets his brothers, he forgives them. There is reconciliation. How do you do this? Not only does he not take revenge; he actually has the ability inside to forgive, to create closure, to bring the family back together. The brothers can't believe it. After their father's death, they think now he's going to take revenge. And again, he tells them, "You may have tried to hurt me, but God elakim chashav God had a good plan." and he sent me here. And the answer to these questions is simple and profound. Joseph turns to his brothers when he meets them the first time, identifying himself to them, and he says these words, I'm going to quote it in the original text and translate. (laughs) You did not sell me. God sent me. What's the difference, my dearest friends, between being sold and being sent? What's the difference? I sell my computer, I sell my company, I sell my house, I sell my car, I sell my watch, I sell something on eBay. No, huh? no, okay. I don't need it. And I don't. Cons- I don't ask the house, do you want to be sold? Do you want to go from the Jacobsons to the Goldbergs? I don't ask my car, would you like to be sold? The thing that is sold is a passive object, like a ping pong ball. From me, it goes to you. That's what happens. That's being sold. What about being sent? Being sent by definition. I'm sending you on a mission. Not only do I need your consent... But I need to evaluate that you are the right person appropriate for the job. I evaluate you and I make sure you have the skills and the resources needed because I am dispatching you to go fulfill a certain objective. So Joseph tells his brothers, I could look back at my life and I could say, I was sold. But I'm going to say it differently I wasn't sold, I was sent. I'm now going to ask you, my dear friends, to look back at your life. Each and every single one of us sitting in this room has lived a life and we have not chosen all the circumstances of our life. Some people who have experienced abuse in their childhood or their younger years have not chosen this path. Some of us who grew up in dysfunctional families in dysfunctional homes, who have seen raging parents, alcoholics, addicts, codependents, gamblers. We have seen rage. We have seen emotional or verbal or physical abuse. Some of us who have had horrible relationships, relationships that were characterized by strife, negativity, and suffering. Some of us who have lost loved ones, We knew what grief is at two of a young age. Some of us who have known loss. Some of us who know about the pain of mental illness. That silent pain that nobody else knows about. Besides you. How difficult it is to wake up in the morning and get out of bed. mental internal challenges, or physical ailments, or terrible financial stress, or so many other sources of anxiety that we experience at one point or another in our life, so many of them as a result of different things that happened and the fact that at some point in our lives, spaghetti hit the fan. I cannot change my circumstances of the past, nor can you. There are things you saw, there are things you experienced, that you and I can't change. There are choices we made, maybe when we were young and immature or ill-informed, that we can't always change. This is what we did, and now we deal with the consequences. But here is one of the most important questions in life. And Judaism challenges us and invites us to ask this question every single day. And that is, was I sold or was I sent? That makes all the difference. Was I really, do I really see myself as a ping pong ball? I was literally a ping pong ball. I was cast here, cast there, thrown here, thrown there, and just a passive victim to the various challenges I experienced, and here I am, full of bruises and scars, emotional or psychological or physical. But maybe there's another way of looking at my life. Maybe I could look at my life and say, like Joseph, you know why I'm at peace? Because I was set. God somehow evaluated my soul, my personality, my strengths, My character and God sent me to every place I ended up in this world, physically or emotionally. Giving me the power and the stamina to be able to create light in that space of darkness. This is not a rationalization or explanation why anything happened. I don't think any human brain can ever grasp that or make light of it. But this is perspective. So I may wake up in the morning. Some of us wake up in the morning and our minds are inundated with depressing thoughts. Some people won't understand this. They wake up, they press snooze, next time they jump out of bed like a frog and boom, everything is good. And some of us lay there and we're wondering why we're alive. What's the purpose of life? Who am I? To be or not to be that is the question. Why am I not a frog? Should I get a new therapist? Should I stay in my marriage? What do I do with this? What do I do with that? I'm purposeless. My life is useless. Why can't I just be a car mechanic? And if you are, that's wonderful. I'm just talking about me. I'm not. I bring my car to mechanics. And those are the simple thoughts. And then sometimes the thoughts are truly draining because they come with real, real stress and depression. I can't always change these thoughts. Sometimes there's nothing I can do with it. But I have to answer one question. Was I sold or was I sent? What Joseph understood was the truth. Every single soul is essentially divine, sacred, wholesome, impeccable, flawless. Nobody and nothing can obliterate the light of your soul. Nobody and nothing can destroy Your core power, your core wholesomeness, your core sacredness. Your soul is a fragment of infinity, the Tanya says. Your soul is a piece of God. God is invincible and you are invincible. But he sent my soul into many interesting places. Sometimes into places of anxiety and depression. Sometimes into places of strife. Sometimes into places of deep, deep challenge. And my role at every single moment is to remember I was not sold, I was sent. And if I was sent, I have the resources, the gear, the power, the faculties to be able not to remain a victim, but to introduce light, perspective, clarity into these situations, grow from it, allow it to make me deeper, wiser, happier, and more blessed. That's why Joseph could look at his brothers and not flinch. He knew what pain was. He knew what suffering was. He was not naive, nor was he emotionally black. I told you, he cries more than any other personality in the Torah. Seven times he cries. That's unique in the Hebrew Bible because his emotions are not blocked. His emotions are open, and yet he can look them in the eyes and reconcile with them. He can create closure, and he never ever becomes a miserable, bitter, cynical, downtrodden, depressed, dejected, lonely human being. The person who, as our brothers Simon and Garfunkel would say, the rock feels no pain and an island never Cries. He never becomes a rock, and he never becomes an island. Islands never cry, but islands are lonely. Rock feels no rocks feel no pain, but they remain rocks, unmoved. Joseph never becomes a rock and never becomes an island. You know why? Because he feels pain. He allows himself to feel pain, but he never allows himself to feel as a loser as a victim. He will never allow himself to believe that his soul could be snuffed out, that his life could be snuffed out, that his dreams could be snuffed out. So from the bottomless pit, mibesa Surim asurim yotza limloch, Ecclesiastes says, from the abyss of incarceration, he becomes the most successful man, one of the most successful men on the planet, the prime minister of Egypt, because he always knows that his core self could never be broken because he was never sold, he was sent. That's the question you and I have to answer every single day. I could look back at my life and I could observe a lot of things going on in my life and I have to answer one question and that is, am I just a victim or was I sent? The Jewish approaches know that sometimes I got to face some difficult stuff. Sometimes you have to make difficult decisions. Sometimes your path ahead is challenging. Sometimes you have to confront adversity. It's uncomfortable, it's difficult, it's challenging but you are an ambassador of the divine. You're an ambassador of love, of light, of hope. You were sent to a difficult place, but you were given all the strength and stamina you need to be able to be an ambassador of light into that place, to be able to transform it, to be able to turn it into a blessing. Friends, I mentioned before the microwave oven. The microwave oven. And when I think about it, I want to conclude with this, what I find a very charming and lovely little story. This couple gets married. They go on a honeymoon, 1940. An American couple, they go on a honeymoon. Where do you go on a honeymoon? They decide they're not going to the Hilton. (coughs) despite our wonderful accommodations, or the Ritz-Carlton, they're going to rent a little wooden cabin in the forest and spend their three days and three nights and bond as a young romantic American couple of 1940 before a lot of the distractions that we have today of him texting all day, etc. So they go, and they go to sleep in this lovely cabin, And it's raining outside, but they're in a cabin, and it's so romantic, you know, when it's raining all around you and you're in this forest and you're protected. But little did they know that there was a little woodpecker who decided to peck away on the roof over their heads, and it pecked and pecked and pecked and pecked, and finally it created an opening. (laughs) And God's floods began descending not for 40 days and 40 nights. But for three days and three nights, making them wet, their mattress wet, their sheets wet in this cabin. There was nowhere else to go. They were hoping tomorrow they'll make it up. Besides getting soaked, they also couldn't sleep because the woodpecker was making such sounds that none of them could fall asleep. They go to sleep the second night. They're exhausted. And sure enough, they're visited by the guest. Once again, the woodpecker did not stop pecking away. They could not enjoy even an hour of sleep besides getting soaked again because of the weather. And imagine the same thing happened the third night. Time to go home. (laughs) They're going home. Now how would you or I summarize the honeymoon? I think the best word would be miserable. Whatever can go wrong, went wrong. Never again. This was a horrible choice, probably most Jewish couples would start blaming each other. I told you we should just go to a normal hotel! You're trying to always be creative and rustic and organic and holistic and natural. Stupidity! The Hilton is just fine, we'll sit in the lobby and be rustic in a lobby. Right? He would blame her and she would blame him and he would blame them. And the rest of their marriage, they would be blaming each other. Because these stories that happen at the honeymoon just repeat themselves in different formats for the next 60, 70 years. And that's what what I would expect if I would write the story. But something else happened. The wife turned to the husband in the car driving back and said, We had a wonderful time. This was awesome. It was amazing. And he agreed. And she said, there's only one thing left to do. Figure out how it was amazing. <laughs> Figure out how it was amazing. And that's when she, suge- she suggested to him to turn this into an animated cartoon, which came to be known as Woody Woodpecker, that Mr. and Mrs. Lindsay conceived that day returning from their honeymoon and 50 years later a newspaper man interviewed the couple who at this point reached tremendous success financial success tremendous achievement had a great and blessed career in terms of popularity and impact etc and this journalist asked them a question what was the best night of your life and they both answered the night of our honeymoon in the wooden cabin, when the woodpecker had all the rain come into our cabin and would not let us sleep for a night, that was the most successful and best night of our life. They chose to decide that they had a great time. They just have to figure out how, and they figured out how. Now, friends, I know not all endings are so sweet and romantic, but there is a deep perspective here. And that is, we all have woodpeckers chipping away on our roofs, sometimes causing us to get soaked in one way or another and depriving us of sleep. I could look at it and say, what a miserable life, what a miserable upbringing, what a miserable marriage. What miserable relationships, what miserable parents, what miserable siblings, what a miserable job, what a miserable schooling experience, what a miserable community, not this one, but other ones. (laughs) What a miserable this, what a miserable that. And if you're a good Jew, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And you know what? You may be right. (laughs) You may be right. But you have another choice. The other choice is you weren't sold. You were never sold anywhere. You were sent. And you were sent in order to turn your circumstances into a blessing for yourself and others. To turn your circumstances into a source of enlightenment, education, awareness, and inspiration. Thank you very much. Thank you you very much, uh, Rabbi Jackson. With your permission, first of all, um, it was wonderful, and uh, thank Thank you. you. Another round of applause. Thank you. you. I know some people have to leave and run, but um, I have a few questions myself, and but I. Would like to open the floor, and I think I have your permission to do that. Sure. So, if anyone has questions, you want to uh, handle the questions, or should I? No, I could. not know. Okay. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> yes. Go ahead. Who sent the woodpecker? Who sent the woodpecker? Who sent the woodpecker? He wants you to repeat as you're on. Oh oh oh! Who sent the woodpecker? Ah, that's a good question. That's a good question. You want to know if it was karma? Huh? Mother Teresa, who do you want to know? Said the, woodpecker? I, I, the one who sends all woodpeckers. <laughs> woodpeckers, when it comes to woodpeckers and similar birds, mammals, insects, fish, that's where we could see the divine imprint in its full glory because they never corrupt their mission. They do exactly what they're sent to do and their minds don't play so many games with them as our minds do. So they actually have clarity of vision. A lot to learn from the animal kingdom. But good question. Yes, yes, please, go ahead. By the way, as the rabbi said, if anybody needs to leave, feel free to uh, leave. It's your loss, don't worry. But if anybody wants to ask questions, feel free to ask. Yes. Excellent question. The question. Yes. How much of life is our free will and sometimes poor, poor decision making and stupid mistakes that we made at 18 or 23 or 43 or whatever, and how much of it is God directing, uh, God directing our path? <laughs> Thank you for coming. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm trying to change the subject that's <laughs> why you come to wrestling faith you're, you're bringing up now of course one of the very complex questions in, in philosophy and theology and uh, determinism versus freedom I'll, I'll give just one I think brief and concise perspective Uh, If you're familiar, we're coming from Yom Kippur. Not long ago, if it was Yom Kippur, I don't mean to bring back nightmares of fasting. And this, there's food waiting for you in your home. I just had some water. But throughout Yom Kippur, we do this confession, which we also do throughout the year. It begins with Ashamnu, Bagadnu. Ashamnu, Bagadnu. And the interesting thing is we do it with a song. In most synagogues, they do We sinned, we betrayed you, we stole, we lied, we perverted, we were wicked. We robbed you, we gave you ill advice. And I always wondered who does a confession like this? (laughs) I mean, imagine your husband comes home tonight and he says, I have to make a confession. And he's like, ay, 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 When we went to Thailand last week, and we booked a hotel. First of all, what's this we? I, not we. Confession is I, not we. In Judaism, confession is always in the plural. It's always we. We sin, al-chei <laughs> What's we? Confession by definition has to be, I, oh, the buck stopped here. I take responsibility. I'm accountable. And why were this wrong? And one of the very powerful answers was given by a man named Rapinchas of Karat, a student of the Bar And he said, the we refers to me and God. We sinned is me and God together. Meaning, even the ill decisions I made, were they completely my fault? I mean, if I was a 15-year-old little schmendrick, what do you expect? A high school girl? You grew up in a certain family. I have a certain type of brain. Yes, I have made decisions, and I'm accountable for them, and I have to take responsibility, and I can't blame the world, and I have to ultimately express remorse and resolve. But ultimately, God shares also part of the responsibility. He brought me where I am. He gave me certain skills, he gave me certain challenges. Does it mean I can overcome them? Yes, but it also means that there's a lot that was set up. This chess game in many ways was set up, which basically means that at every moment of life, I have to look and ask myself the question, what is my calling at this moment? And do the best I can under the circumstances to live up to my fullest physical and spiritual potential. But as I look back at my life, Yes, I could say a shabnu, but I don't say I say said, I said which means we're in this together. Which means, of course, that I was sent. That somehow you allowed me to go through the situation, because somehow you feel that from this very challenge, I can become a transformed person. I can turn my adversity into a catalyst of awareness. And I can turn my pain into a springboard for love. That's the short answer to your question. Which is why we sing. Which is why we sing. Because it means it's not hopeless. I'm not alone. I'm not alone in this. There is, there is a joy here. There is a melody here. There's a melody of hope. And we do it as a community again. We spoke before about the power of community. Yes? What do we know of Yosef's practice or anything that he did to sort of cultivate that... that That's a good question. Very hard. Very hard. What type of meditations did Joseph do in prison to cultivate this type of attitude? Well, I can't tell you specifically that I know, but he was studying for 17 years by his father, Jacob, who of course received the tradition from his father, Isaac, who received them from his father, Abraham the first Jew who received them from Shem and Aver and Noah and all the way back to uh, Adam and Eve. So these were people who were uh, educated and grounded in the deep traditions of, of, of faith and of centeredness and of cosmic oneness and connectedness which allowed him and them not to falter. So I would attribute it primarily to the education 17 years with his father. And one more thing I would say, there's a very interesting expression in the Talmud and in the Zohar and in Medrash that when Potiphar's wife, his master's wife, tried to violate she said, come sleep with me. And he said, you're a married woman. I can't betray your husband this way. And she pushed him and pushed him and pushed him. And the Talmud says, in Yuma, she threatened him, etc. And the, the verse indicates that he surrendered. Joseph surrendered. He almost surrendered. In the last moment, he abstained. What happened? He saw the visage of Jacob, his father, in the window. In the window bedroom, he saw the image of Jacob, his father. And and he abstained. What happened? What, What did he see? What did he see in his father? I think one of the explanations is, he had a father who never ever stopped believing in him. He had a father who saw in Joseph tremendous greatness and he never stopped believing it. And how do we know it? It says, when they told Jacob, they showed him a tunic filled with blood. and They said, do you recognize this tunic? He said, it's my son. He was devoured. He refused to be comforted. So the Talmud says, because a person could only be comforted on somebody who died, not on somebody who's alive. When somebody is alive, there's no closure. When somebody is dead, it's difficult, but there's closure. There could be closure. Not always, but often it could be closure. So Jacob could not have closure with Joseph because he really wasn't dead. What does this mean spiritually? Spirit. Every story in Torah is also on a spiritual level. It's to be understood physically and spiritually. Many people looked at Joseph, and he was the black sheep of the family. They wrote him off. When Joseph is in the abyss, it's not just physically, it's emotionally. You see a teenager sometimes, he's in the abyss. And mothers and fathers sometimes write off their children. They say, I tried hard, but this kid, forget it. He's done, he's finished, he's fried. He's in the, he's in the abyss. He's a slave. He sold his body and sold his soul. Jacob refused to believe that his son is dead. Jacob said, my son is not dead. My son is alive. I know my son. I believe in my boy. And because he believed in his boy, his boy believed in himself. When you believe in your child, truthfully and earnestly, you allow your child to believe in himself or herself. Never, ever, ever write off a child. Never, ever give up on a child. Never, ever sever connections with a child. Sometimes our children cause us the most pain because they're closest to us. But the only reason they're causing you so much pain is because you love them so much. Let love triumph over pain. Never allow the pain to eclipse the love under any circumstances. This doesn't exclude discipline of young children. On the contrary, real love requires good discipline. But it means never sever the deep, deep relationship. Jacob never did that. And that was certainly part of what held Joseph intact so he saw the image of his father. He saw a father who believes in him so he could believe in himself. He said, I am too good to sell my body to this lady who just wants to violate me. Mm-hmm. Yes? Now you gave an example of a woodpecker disturbing a couple so but happiness shouldn't, shouldn't interfere with that but they're under on are yeah. circumstances. Yes, I know. Yeah. Nothing could make anybody happy. I mean, there are people in this world, God forbid, who are just. She's making a powerful point. She's saying, you know, a woodpecker, at the end of the day, you got soaked for three nights and you didn't sleep. You could make light of the situation. Sometimes people go through experiences in life that are heart wrenching, heart wrenching. And truth be told, I take off my shoes and I stand in awe in the presence of such a person. such a moment. We heard before about Holocaust survivors, Uh, the pillars and the genesis of this community. What some of these people went through, no quill, no pen could describe. It will be recorded as one of the greatest miracles of modern times, the way the survivors came out and rebuilt their lives and their families. In my imagination it's greater than the miracle of the splitting of the red sea the mana and the exodus of egypt maybe from the ashes from the ouches of auschwitz and birkenau they got married not all but many got married had children built homes built communities were they perfect no were there a lot of challenges in the homes yes was there screaming in the middle of the night by many of them yes some of them watched 11 siblings going up in smoke in one day. I know, I know such people, I knew such people. But they did whatever they can to rebuild hope, to give their children the possibility of, of, of a better life. That will one day be told and recorded as one of the greatest mir- miracles, not only of modern times, but perhaps of all times. And when you hear such a story and you see such a story, I certainly, I grew up in America, uh, I was born in the early 1970s, I did not know a day of hunger in my life, a day of famine in our life, I got upset when there was no ketchup in the refrigerator, and I still get upset when I can't find the keys to my car. Uh, comparing that with what some of our parents and grandparents went through, it's, it's a completely different world, and I think we always have to have that humility in the face of such pain. And yet we have to ask ourselves, when it comes to our own lives, how we can uh, create more positive energy and happiness. That's a powerful and very important point. We'll take another question. Any other questions? Yes, please, go ahead. Yes, uh, I wrote my own new, We read at my funeral, and every year I update it. You wow. I update it every six months or a year. <laughs> I'll repeat what he said. This young spring chicken, this teenager, tells us that he wrote his own eulogy. He prepared his own eulogy to be read at his funeral in 180 years. And he updates his eulogy once a year. And he's asking my advice if he should update it every six months. Wow, that's a first. I've been privy to many questions in my life. I do this for a living, but that's a first. Let me tell you, let me tell you my, uh, my opinion. First, I wanna bless you that you should be the only one reading your eulogy. That's my first blessing. Nobody else should. I mean, you could share it with your spouse, of course, and with me, but I mean, nobody should read it at the pulpit. Uh, my, second, my second hope and blessing is, more important than updating the eulogy every six months, would be actually updating your life every six months. Very good, every day. I didn't want to push it, so that I think would be would be the priority. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. What she said very powerful is that the beautiful component of the woodpecker story is that they were together. Lotova, they were together in it. They experienced the the challenge together, and together they can recreate it. And I think that can be true in so many of our lives. Yes. Were Honeymooners. Yes. Mm. Yeah, so this comment th- th- we just heard a comment of a honeymooner who just told us, You're also a honeymooner? I'm blessing you. I blessed him not to read his eulogy. I'm blessing you to remain a honeymooner. <laughs> and that's, that, that would work together no eulogies and honeymooning. Uh, let me tell you, it's quite a good point. Uh, a great, one of the great marriage therapists of New York once told me, he said, Rabbi, he says, when a couple comes here three months after the wedding, my job is so easy. I put him into perspective for her, I put her into perspective for him. They go home holding hands happily ever after together with Cinderella. They come in here after 17, 18, 19, 20 years. There's so many issues, so many patterns, so many entrenched habits. So much mistrust, that's the key. The baseline of love and loyalty has been compromised. But this is one of the great, I think, lessons of Judaism. And that is, we always have to have the courage in life to go back to the beginning. It is so important. In Judaism, every Shabbat, every Sunday is considered the first Sunday of existence. Hayom, Yom, Rishon, Shabbat the first day we say every day in our prayers God renews creation every single morning in other words I have to have the ability to go home tonight look at my wife and say Esty you want to go on a date I don't know you what's your name really wow to be curious to be inquisitive what happens is we put our spouse in a box I know exactly who she is, she knows exactly who I am. I already expect what she's gonna say when I go through the door. There are husbands who know when they come home late, like me, there are husbands who know, they imagine what their wife is gonna say, they already anticipate their response, they anticipate their wife's breath. they're already in a fight before they got home. Because I know her, she knows me, and we just play out our parts in the play complete determinism, there's no choice whatsoever, and for the next 60 years, they're just replaying the same script in different lines. That's it, it is. And it always boils down to the same thing, you just don't get it. They come to the therapist, she picks up her hands, and I... And he's like, when are we getting out of this session? I have an important email, (laughs) right? But if we can have the courage to actually start anew to be able to say maybe my perspective was a little compromised maybe it was a little painful maybe if I could open myself up to the other person's window I could see some freshness and you'll be surprised by how much blessing you can bring into your marriage as a result of that think about it yes started your lecture with the terms anxiety and worry, and yet for some strange reason you selected Joseph over Moses, when Moses had to keep people together for 40 years. I'm sure they only had a little bit of anxiety and worry <laughs> over 40 years as to where they're going, when they're going to get there. That- Excellent question. Why did I make the hero of my lecture, Joseph, and not Moses, when Moses had to lead them 40 years through a wilderness with snakes and scorpions and a nation filled with anxiety. And the answer is because I didn't want my lecture to take 40 years. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Thank you. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at donate.